This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour with Rochelle Hunt on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. On the 30th anniversary of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, families are calling for more and better rehabilitation programs. Rehabilitation was a key point of the Royal Commission to try and help tackle incarceration rates. So today on the Conversation Hour, we want to look at rehabilitation programs, either for those that are currently in prison, on parole, doing community service, or as a form of prevention. What's working? What's not? Do we need more or do we need better programs? And this is for both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. How individual and tailored does rehab need to be for it to be successful? How long-term and a part of your everyday life does rehab need to be? So what's helpful And where does employment, housing, things like that come into rehabilitation? What about early prevention? John Tippett is a barrister. He's in the Northern Territory and he spoke last week on AM. Putting them in jail does not rehabilitate. We don't need to know anymore. We know it and it makes me angry. Serious money is not put into rehabilitation services uh, so that we can actually address the real problem instead of simply warehousing people. It's a powerful statement, isn't it? Simply warehousing people. So more money, more focus into rehabilitation. What needs to change? As I said earlier, is it just simply more of it? Is it easier access? Is it better quality? And what about the types of rehab that are offered whilst in prison? Is that working? We had a caller this time last week, Michael, onto the program talking about the fact that it didn't work for him. And a lot of what he had to say has inspired today's program. We'll speak to Michael a little later in the program, but here's what he had to say about his experience of rehab whilst serving time in prison. We were given a booklet to fill out and everything like that. And I looked at the content. And I remember thinking to myself, a program like this set out in this way outside of prison where 100% of the uh, applicants are all wanting to be there, I thought, yeah, you could really get a lot out of this because you're here wanting to be here. Now, I was trying to make the most of it because, you know, lemons to lemonade type of situation. I thought, well, I'm here. I may as well just, I have to do it to get parole. So I may as well apply myself and learn as much as I possibly can, which, which I did. But the limitations of being in prison are great. And the, the, you know, particularly having to challenge other people's values that are in prison. You don't know this person. And it was a very daunting thing to, mm. to have to do. And we never kind of experienced a formal completion of any issues that we brought up. We were just, we brought everything to the surface and then went back out into the prison yard. And I can, I can tell you without, without telling specifics of stories that it didn't work out. We'll speak to Michael a little later in the program. Now he is out of prison. He is working tirelessly to try and make changes. And we'll speak to many other people throughout today's program that are trying to do the same. The role of rehabilitation is huge, isn't it? Both in prison and outside of prison as a part of early prevention, as intervention. So what works? When we're talking rehabilitation, what needs to change? As I said, more of it, easier access or better quality. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. We were basically, in some sense, forced to do the program because if we didn't do the program, we could kiss parole goodbye. And so what that kind of did for the energy in, in the room was you could tell 90% of the guys in there didn't want to be there. And in fact, on the first day when we were all asked why we were, were we doing it, um, a, lot of, a lot of them just said, look, we're, we're here because we want parole and that's it. What works when it comes to rehabilitation? You'll hear from Michael a little later. Robert Tickner, AO, is the chair of the Justice Reform Initiative. He was the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Affairs Minister under both Bob Hawke and Paul Keating. And joins you now, Robert, we've just heard from Michael talking about rehabilitation whilst inside prison and the fact that he believes that doesn't work. We know that your initiative believed that jailing is failing and that the criminal justice system just simply isn't working. What needs to change? That's a great first question, Rochelle, and I think the Aboriginal deaths in custody 
Royal Commission uh, highlighted a couple of key issues, both of which have never been properly addressed by governments. And some of those Aboriginal deaths in custody issues I'm about to speak of also have implications for the wider uh, community and the non-Aboriginal people who are going into prison. And you are absolutely right, uh, jailing is failing, and we'll talk about that in the course of uh, our conversation. But the Royal Commission strongly recommended that imprisonment be a last resort. Um, And that's, of course, um, been defied effectively by governments of all political persuasions around Australia in the last 30 years because the prison population has astronomically increased, effectively doubling and more, and Aboriginal people's uh, statistics, of course, are are even worse. Um, And the point to be made here, of course, is that all the evidence is from around the world that programs that divert um, offenders from incarceration where they pose no threat to the wider community and seek to break that cycle of recidivism or repeat offending are the best hope that um, the individual has and the wider community has for a you know a safer more harmonious mm. and productive and inclusive community the second major push of the aboriginal deaths in custody royal commission was to highlight the criticality of what the royal commission referred to as the underlying issues that gave rise to the disproportionate rate of aboriginal incarceration In the case of Aboriginal people, of course, there are particular uh, highly influential determinants which arise simply from virtue of being an Aboriginal person. Mm -hmm. But they also highlighted a whole range of other issues, and that is that if you take a snapshot of our 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 population of human beings who are in prison right around Australia – In broad terms, it looks something like this. Uh, Firstly, a massively disproportionate number of Aboriginal people, as we all know, Um, but it also includes a very high percentage of people who either have some mental health issue or some cognitive disability. Uh, It includes overwhelmingly people with low educational attainment and people who have not had uh, a job at the time they were incarcerated, and many of them have gone through a whole lifetime of Mm. unemployment. Um, There are many other things, of course, that influence things, Uh, people being caught up with substance abuse, um, coming from you know, a bit of a tough life where families have have, have broken up. Um, And these statistics... Um, Rochelle, simply do not lie. Not only, can I just add one quick point, not only has the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths and Custody highlighted these kinds of determinants, but, you know, from Victoria, of course, uh, the Jesuits uh, Social Justice Organisation has done some wonderful work through the years with the late Professor Tony Vincent talking about the postcodes of disadvantage, um, the dropping off the edge reports, which essentially showed beyond doubt, as the Australian Bureau of Statistics has, this stark correlation between people, you know, living very difficult lives in in poor communities, marginalised communities, and the vastly disproportionate incarceration rate of those people. And this particularly applies to kids. Thanks. Mental health is a big part of it, Robert, and Michael, who will speak with a little later, and I'll look, I'll paraphrase what he's told me off air and he will go into it, but it's, you know, he said a lot of people have this image of, of prison, that it's all career criminals and that it's gangsters, and he said the reality is it was people like me, people that are living with mental health issues, that are living, living with drug addiction issues, and that have had a really, really tough start to life. So when you start to look at that, he'll speak about the role that prison plays and the importance of that as well for a lot of people. But when we talk about prevention and when we talk about rehabilitation, it's almost like rehabilitation beforehand, pre-rehab. How important is 
the right program for the right person? And how do we go about making sure that people know about and have access to these programs and long term? I think the um, the first point to make, if I can, is the high-level one, that this justice reform initiative that I chair and this jailing is failing campaign basically brings together people from across the uh, political lines, senior former members of the judiciary. In Victoria, you know, we've got some absolutely wonderful patrons you can see on our website. But the unity, I suppose, of purpose that we have around the issue that you've expressly raised now is essentially to say that it makes much greater economic and social Mm. policy um, sense to invest in individuals and communities to break that cycle. And in Victoria, of course, there is some wonderful work being undertaken by organisations like VACRO, um, ACSO, AXO, Flatout, um, the work being undertaken by the Centre for Innovative Justice, my friend and colleague Rob Hulls, heads up at RMIT University and many others. These organisations are doing great work, but it's true to say, Rochelle, that the community-based organisations that I've referred to are really surviving pretty much on the smell of an oily rag. (laughs) And that's what we need to do. We need to uh, find uh, people of goodwill in the community, no matter what our our differences might be, um, to come together to... Explain to the public that this isn't some, um, you know, campaign by the fringe group. This is That's a right. mainstream and quite often they live and breathe it. And, and the reason why they got into that industry is, is from passion, and they're either doing it as volunteers or being paid next to nothing. But they've often got the solutions that we overlook, and to have a holistic approach and to involve the community in that. Robert Tigner, while we have you, I want to go to a, a quick caller. Terry's called from Ballarat. Terry. This is, I guess, along the lines of what you do. Yeah, very, yeah, very much so. So um, I'm a kinship carer for uh, a 15 year old kid who's um, uh, not from Australia originally; he's from Africa, and, um, and it's, we've just finished. Like we've just celebrated uh, 12 months with him being in my care, and we're going to go for a, a bit of a uh, longer, longer term uh, placement with me. Um, and and it's interesting, uh, particularly that last little bit that you guys said, just around the, I guess the connectedness and and these um, uh, programs that are there, the prevention programs. And so, the 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 person who's in my care, he's um, he's just gone through one called MAST, which I think that one was uh, done by Justice Victoria or, or something like that. And and what their aim was to do was to really get um, get this young person connected back into the community, but not uh, like not just with um, not just within the community, but within a family unit as well. Yeah. And and just seeing how this person's gone from when he first came in to how how he is now, twelve months on. They're two completely different people. And and the and the only thing that I can really put it down to is. One before he came into one my care, but just in general, he was really disconnected. One from family and from um, uh, from the community, and since then, being part of different uh, groups and different support networks that are out there, and being plugged into, uh, I guess, um, a, an environment that is willing and wanting to have him there that shows the care and, and, and love and all that that a normal family would. Absolutely. And it shows you that it's everything, turn. isn't it? It's 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 a stable it, home. It's employment. Terry, what prompted you to bring this person into your home and to dedicate a big chunk of your life to helping someone else? Yeah. Um, I, 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 I think... I, I, I'd like to think that I've got a bit of a caring sort of nature to begin with. And, like, I do a bit of youth work here in Ballarat as it is. And so uh, I, I knew this person. He used to come to the youth group of it, and then um, he got into a little bit of trouble with um, with the police and and uh, and then one of 
uh, the family friends uh, asked me whether or not I'd be willing to sort of look after him on a weekend here and there to give respite from his grandmother, who who um, was quite sick herself um, with a couple of back issues and and whatnot, and um, and then that turned into from a weekend here and there into oh, can you look after him for a couple of weeks, and a couple of weeks turned into a couple of months, and a couple of months has turned into twelve months, and it looks mm. like it'll turn into. Um, the next sort of two, three years, but um, just, yeah, Incredible. seeing, yeah, uh, like, I, I don't think it's it's suited for everyone, and, and, like, to be honest, I didn't exactly know what I was getting myself into when I first sort of, the, when I first did it, but, like, there are supports out there for the carers that are to look after these people, but I, I, I personally think that if we're going to see, like, the breaking of the cycle, so to speak, it's about putting them in, into a community and an environment that wants them and, and really wants to help them. And so I think that if anyone's thinking about, like, f- whether it be fostering, uh, like, teenagers or, or just kids in general, like, uh, make sure that you know what you're getting in for because it's really, really tough. Like, it, it, it hasn't been easy, I, I, I will admit. It's been really full on. But at the same time... Like you get past the real hard stuff, and as soon as the, the kid realizes, yeah. well, as soon as you see that kid realize that you're there on their side, and they know that, and then, then like it's a flip, it's a switch that gets flipped, and and then you just that's when you start, start seeing some really progress. big growth. Terry, that's incredible. Good on you, mate. Thank you so much. Thank you for calling. Robert Tickner, AO, is with you as well. He's the chair of the Justice Reform Initiative. I mean, Robert, that's next level, isn't it? When you look at the work that's being done from the Justice Reform and the group of people and quite high-powered people that are in this initiative and the changes that you're wanting to make. And then you've got people like Terry and Ballarat who are out there making a difference. Does it take all levels like that? Yes, it does. I think you've really hit the nail on the head. There are some tremendous things happening around the country and the Aboriginal community and Aboriginal community-based organisations really do have the answers and the solutions uh, for challenges facing young Aboriginal kids and for Aboriginal you know, people who've been in jail and who are being released. But they need resources to be able to implement the vision and the commitment to, to turn things around. Can I say that in Victoria, I'm aware of the Himalo uh, project as well, where the Somali community around Heidelberg is doing some wonderful, empowering work um, for uh, um, many young people in, in the community, really trying to break that cycle and and give an opportunity for employment, which, of course, we all know is, is so important. Broshok, can I just highlight the bigger mm. picture just for one second? And because you are right, the Justice Reform Initiative is about shifting the political ground so that we have some cross-party cooperation in Victoria and right around the country uh, on these issues. We want our political leaders to implement evidence-based policy and the jury is already in from what works around the world. People may not realise but in Australia we have a higher incarceration rate than all the countries of Western Europe that we normally compare ourselves to as well as Canada and I think it's important that our politicians understand that even in the United States of America, which we sometimes think of as the home of incarceration, that Republicans and Democrats are increasingly singing from the same song sheet around criminal justice reform because they've all realised, it doesn't matter where they are on the political spectrum, that the enormous cost of building and operating more and more prisons, um, which deliver such shockingly pitiful results in in, uh, breaking that cycle, that the money is much better spent in communities, on individuals and getting people in jobs. Haven't we? We've known, I mean, I'm just pulling some numbers out of the air here, but it costs something like 80 or thousand dollars per person to keep someone in year for a, uh, to keep someone in prison for a year versus what it would cost to help house them or give them a job or, or give them rehabilitation are we ever going to see government parties come together though we can't see them come together on the most simplest of things 
Well, I think that there is some potential, some enormous potential to move things. And in Victoria, you know, apart from the um, um, high-level members of the judiciary who've um, been involved in the Justice Reform Initiative, and we have, you know, wonderful people like Petro Giorgio, uh, Rob Hulls, uh, former Labor Attorney General on the other side of the equation, uh, Jenny Macklin, around the country, uh, you know, people like Senator Robert Hill in South Australia, Micah Hearn uh, from the former National Party Premier of Queensland is one of our patrons, Fred Cheney, Ian Viner, um, you know, there are people on on the both sides of politics and in and in the other mm. political parties who've really said enough is enough of this sterile useless unproductive political debate which is not based on the on the evidence we really should be implementing policies that are evidence-based, and, and that's what our yeah. website and, and all our campaign is directed towards. And we're getting through to people. I'm convinced of that. I want to ask you in just a moment, you know, when is jail okay? Because, of course, there are many times when it is. This text, I spent a large proportion of the 90s in and out of prison. You won't read this, but the thing that saved me, um, the thing that saved me was a reliable heroin dealer. He was able to stabilise, then he eventually stopped, and there's no prison since then. Well, I did read it, and I think it's important to get all perspectives here. And when prison does work, when it doesn't, when it is needed, but how to stop people coming in and out of the system. This, my friend's son was in jail for the first time. Apparently the resources that were provided to him were amazing. I think it was a good chance for him to make a difference, which is the first time you go to jail, but by the second or the third time, there were only limited resources provided for rehabilitation. And that's what we're talking about today on The Conversation Hour. Rehabilitation, what works, what doesn't, how much effort needs to go into ensuring that the individual's rehabilitation program works for them. Robert Tickner is with you, but Michael, he's a regular caller to this program, and you actually inspired the second part of, of today's chat, Michael, because last week we were talking about whether or not behaviour programs work and, and um, actually change people's behaviour. And you did a behavioural changing program within prison. Yes. That led to you sort of thinking about rehab within prison and whether or not it works whilst you're in prison. And according to you, it doesn't. Uh, yes. So the behavioural change programs in my uh, experience did not work for me and, and did not work for the group I was in. I had heard of some people saying that they enjoyed it and, and they got something out of it, but the, the kind of uh, common consensus around these programs was that uh, it was scary to be in them. People didn't want to be themselves. They didn't want to divulge too much information about themselves because they didn't know the other guys in the, in the group. And it was uh, quite a scary and uh, uh, kind of disheartening thing because we wanted to, or some of us wanted to actually get as much as we can out of it, and you're only going to get as much out of it as you put in, and then that fear comes back about the people you don't know, and it's a circuit, it's a very uh, repetitive, perpetual cycle that that is every session of these uh, these programs, and so I personally think that these programs are not working in prison. I think they would be much better off to only be run outside of prison, um, and I think that you would get better results and each person would, would get better benefits out of them. Have um, you offered any rehabilitation once you... Because how long did you spend in prison, Michael? Three years and three months. And what sort of rehab programs were you offered once you left? Oh, what, nothing. Once I left prison? Yeah. No, not, nothing. I wasn't offered anything. And this is, this is the... the this is one of the things that I actually stu uh, studied inside of prison in a in a very specific program called the Inside Out program, led by an amazing woman, Dr. Marietta Martinovic. And I I learned a lot during this program, and, and it's basically a program where outside students studying criminology come into the prison, and they get to study one unit of comparative criminal justice systems alongside a. Uh, set group of inmates who have been kind of vetted and, and, and are allowed to do the program and obviously willing to do the program. And I did a lot of work in, uh, in that program for them. And then upon my release, I came up with the three main areas that I'm, I plan to focus on and I am focusing on them and I'm committed to, to seeing them through, which is early prevention. So talking to children in schools and talking to anyone who's of that age of around the risky area that start, maybe start, uh, 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 
using drugs or experimenting with drugs and mm. things like that. Uh, then there's the education aspect of it, which is teaching and educating and informing the wider community of the truths about prison, that it is not filled with gangsters and not filled with career criminals. And while there is a small portion of those people in the prison system, the vast majority of them, all the way from maximum security down, are people like myself who grew up with a mental illness and then it, it, it evolved into a drug addiction and then they landed themselves in prison and thought, okay, what can I do to never come back here, basically? But the culture of prison has a way of catching people and has a way of, of having people conform to that lifestyle. And I think it's because of fear of being an outcast and of kind of breaking mm. through that status quo. And then the final aspect of an area that I'm focusing on that I think is vital is reintegration, assisting former prisoners finding employment. And I don't like focusing on the negatives about, about the system because the negatives are quite evident, but I think they're important to mention. But then we have to start talking about positives. What are we going to do about, about this? We need to assist those who have recently left prison to find employment. I found it very difficult to find employment once yeah. I left prison. Oh, gosh, but that's when such I a common thread, it, yeah. Hey, Michael, stay with us. I'm so proud that you're a regular caller to this program. So I just wonder if, in case I forget, thank you so much for constantly ringing and, and sharing your story. Robert, does it surprise you that Michael received no rehabilitation, three years and three months in prison, and you walk out and you get no offer of a program to help you reintegrate into society, to, to break any cycles that you're in. Employment, I know that's something that's huge on your radar as well. Are you shocked by that? No, not at all. Absolutely um, exactly what I expected to be the case. Um, the um, evidence is, of course, that um, employment can be absolutely critical in breaking that cycle. So just to emphasise, the um, way things operate uh, at the moment is that very often someone who's left jail, who, who in prison, who might have gone in there unemployed, might have had a substance abuse problem, um, you know, struggled um, with limited education, essentially, um, and, and maybe was homeless or almost homeless, tends to be finishing their sentence and back on the street uh, with nowhere to live, no job, um, perhaps struggling with a substance abuse uh, issue and um, you know, with very, very limited mm. opportunity. I, I think it's important that all of us walk a little bit in the shoes of other people and just imagine how difficult it is to turn your life around. So I think the evidence is that you know while there will be people, of course, who for one reason or other end up in prison uh, for long sentences and we do need important programs in prison, I think the evidence is that the more we can divert people from that prison gate uh, and, and youth detention, of course, is an absolutely critical starting point. The more we can divert people, um, the, the better the life outcomes of that individual will be without a shadow of a doubt. Because the fact is that youth detention of itself creates more youth detention and prison creates more prison. 50% um, of the people in Victorian jails and the figures I've seen have, have been there before. It's a revolving door. And we can do better than that. Can I just make the point as well that all that we're talking about here is not about being soft on crime. Uh, it's not suggesting that people shouldn't be held uh, accountable and that people shouldn't be uh, you know, made to um, understand the implications of the criminal offence that, that they have created or committed. But um, the evidence is that the attempts to introduce new and innovative justice measures, uh, particularly around restorative justice, which bring um, the offender and the victim of the crime uh, together in a consensual conversation and and often surround the young offender with family and community yeah. peers, um, is a very powerful method oh, no. of holding people accountable. I, we I, have one of our patrons, Ken Marslu, many people may know, um, he tragically lost his son um, in, a, in a shooting that occurred 
during an armed hold-up, and he has been a massive champion um, of this restorative justice because he understands that you know there is something um, enormously powerful and and leading to tremendous accountability if this is carried out in the right way and, and turns lives around. I know, and as we heard from our previous caller from Ter- Terry in Ballarat, who's trying to create that family home life and that stability, because so many people that are within the prison system simply don't have that. Robert Tickner, AO, is with you, Chair of the Justice Reform Initiative. Michael, just finally, you agree with Robert in the sense that prison actually is important and you believe that it was something that was vital for you. How old were you when you were in prison and, and what made it something that you believe uh, worked for you? So I, I entered prison when I was 26 years old and uh, upon entering prison I was addicted to a, an array of substances, both prescription medication and illicit drugs that I was using to self-medicate. Um, I was uh, spiralling down a 10-plus year cycle of uh, mental illness I had been in rehab centres and I, I, had, I had seen countless psychiatrists and psychologists. And the, what, what uh, prison offered me was to hit the lowest point in my life that I had hit so far. And that was being in a, in a cold cell by myself and uh, withdrawing from all the substances that I was on and basically making a decision which was I, I, had, I felt like I had a choice and it was give up or, or get up. And so I, I got up and I used every possible avenue and every possible lifeline that I could find in prison to learn from. And while the resources were very few and far between, I was able to learn many lessons that I can now uh, put into practice outside of prison, just about perspective of life and about what's important. And I, I kept a journal in there so I could read over it when I came out of prison. So I suppose prison offered me uh, an, a, a time to reflect on my behaviour and on my, my issues of life and then not take no for an answer. I got off all medication in prison and I, I just ate as healthy as I could. I implemented exercise into my life. I implemented writing and reading and that wasn't the normal kind of thing that people do, although there are people in there that do do exactly what I've done. Um, but I was able to sit back and watch objectively to what was happening and I would see people come in and I would see them change and then I would see them leave and, and, and I would guarantee that they would be back and sure enough they were. And so I came up with this thought and I just want everybody to imagine this for a second, which is that imagine a prison system that never sees the same face twice, ever. And so I think, okay, to achieve that, what would we have to do? And, okay, well, we would have to have a system where all the prisons agree to it. So not just the private ones or not just the the government-run ones, but all prisons agree to a kind of mantra of looking after (laughs) our inmates because our inmates are people who are going to get out of prison and if we don't look after them whilst they're in prison, most of them are going to re-offend and create a new victim of crime and continue this perpetual cycle, which is not working. We've all agreed on that. And so... I feel like building skills in prison that we we, we lacked, which is why we ended up in prison. Well, those skills is something, and we know that there's groups, and we're going to speak to them once in just a moment, that are helping people kind of pre- and and post-release get those skills, so that it be for employment, or it might even just be basically sort of looking after yourself as well, learning how to cook, all of those sorts of things. Michael, we know you've got a book coming out later in the year too. You're documenting your whole experience, so we will keep in touch with you. Please continue to call this program. It's been fascinating speaking with you. Thank you, and take care. No worries. I will continue to call this program. <laughs> Good on you, mate. That's Michael. <laughs> Robert Tickner is with you as well, uh, AO Chair of the Justice Reform Initiative. Michael, very waiting very patiently has been Gus in Brunswick. Gus, what did you want to say? Oh, good morning, Michelle and Robert. Um, I just wanted to, um, to bring uh, or to highlight the amazing pro- uh, programming Dipsane called Wanunganalu Learning Place. Um, and it's headed by a cook and yallergy man called Sean Braybrook. And um, it, re, it kind of takes young Aboriginal men who are on community-based orders um, to a, a, a beautiful kind of um, place out in Gippsland, and they spend about three or four months um, out there. And um, 
they've got an amazing record at um, reducing refunding rates um, with the participants that are going out there. And I think it's probably um, due to this sort of um, connecting these young men with their culture and they learn life skills and, you know, they um, drug and alcohol counselling go out there. But it's more about this sort of... Um, connection to culture and um, that I think gives it such amazing success. Gus, thank you. I'm glad you waited. Do you agree, Michael? I mean, that connection to culture, when we're talking about incarceration rates of Aboriginal men and women, the rates are so much higher. And 30 years on since that Royal Commission, we've seen those numbers increase and and not fall. How much of it do we need to ensure that people are connected, connected to their culture, to their history, to the land, and to give people those opportunities? Oh, look, I want to just pick that up and pick up the point raised by Michael because he raised a really um, crunch issue, I suppose. How do we get change? And he's right to challenge the view that we're ever going to get change that is meaningful prison by prison. Um, and this is where political leadership comes in. And I guess it's a, it's a plea and a conversation we're going to have right around this country with parliamentarians from all political persuasions and making the point that what we need is systemic change. We need to have that kind of focus if we're going to still have prisons, and I'm sure we are, um, that they need to have the kind of focus that, that Michael was talking about. And may I say it's really similar in relation to policing. Um, some of your listeners may have seen the recent reports about the outstanding policing that's been occurring in Dubbo in New South Wales recently with the support of senior police officers or read about the efforts in Burke in New South Wales, which are similar. And, but the problem is that we can't just depend upon well-intentioned, highly focused, uh, highly intelligent police officers who happen to arrive in a particular town. So what changes are those, like what, what, what difference are they making? What changes are they well, making? Well, what they're doing is engaging with the community, um, particularly the Aboriginal community um, in, in both Burke and I, and I believe Dubbo, but also they're really operating in a way to try and steer young people away from the criminal justice system. And so, you know, this, this engaged work by very senior police officers is trying to change the culture in those individual towns. But what I say is to all our premiers and to the police ministers, we need change to come from the top, you know, and that has not happened in all those 30 years um, yeah. since the Deaths in Custody Royal Commission. There have been, um, been starts and setbacks, and but no systemic, deep, ongoing change. And that's what we need to see in the justice system generally, in policing and the way that we run our prisons, because the dividends for our community and the changed lives that will result from that kind of um, public policy and social investment is absolutely transformative, as some of our speakers with that lived experience have shown us this morning. Robert, if you, I know you've given us a lot of time already, but if you can spare a little bit longer, because I want to introduce Joe Malcolm Black. You've spoken a lot, Robert, about how we need to involve the entire community and grassroots groups that are already doing programs and that are out there working with people. And Joe Malcolm Black is the CEO of the Youth Junction. Now, this is based out in the, in the western suburbs of Melbourne. Joe, you've been listening to a lot of this, and this is a lot of what you're trying to do. You know, you're offering programs to help people either find work, to gain skills, to try and break that cycle. And you're predominantly working with young people aged 12 to 25 years of age. How important is the right type of rehabilitation for young people in particular? It's incredibly important. Young brains are still forming. Um, obviously, if we can connect with them earlier on and we can create um, work for them while they're still at home, while they're just contemplating, um, we, can, we can spend time with them building pro-social supports, making sure that they have got choices, then we can do a great deal to change what the future might look like. What young people want and need is um, a non-judgmental voice that will walk alongside them over a period of time, provide them with choices, but respect that they will be making choices 
and be there if, if things don't necessarily go um, straight to plan right off the bat. I know one of the many programs that you do, one is a pre-sentence program, which has sort of helped, uh, I guess it's around designing and reducing the risk of re-offending. When you're talking about a pre-sentence program, how that's so before someone goes into prison, what do you work through? What are you trying to help them with? Okay. Um, so generally what we try and do is meet them where they are. Um, you've probably already talked about this, but... Um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs says that there are certain things, people can only have um, a therapeutic interaction or people can only make positive change once their basic needs are met. When we do work with young people um, at, that, at that stage, we're often working with them around other challenges that they might be um, having in their lives. They might want to talk about... Um, variables impacting their identity. They could have crisis-related matters relating to things like housing or homelessness or um, AOD and and, um, mental health issues that need to be addressed before they can make significant other changes in their lives. Employment is a big part of what you look at as well. And I know, Robert Tickner, that employment is something that you're really passionate about. And we've done previous programs on this as well. And, you know, we've had some incredible and heartbreaking conversations with people that have done time in prison that had jobs and had meaningful jobs, you know, jobs with dignity. And then they they are basically just petrified that every day somebody will Google them and, and find out what they've done. They don't know whether or not to disclose right at the beginning whether they should tell someone that they've been in prison or not because so often it means that they just lose that job instantly and very rarely uh, are they kept uh, within that line of employment. I know, Robert, a certain part of the Royal Commission, some of the changes that people were hoping for, especially for young people with lower-level crimes, to have that taken off their record uh, sooner so that employment becomes more feasible, becomes more possible for people. Do we need to look at changes like that? Look, I think we do, and we also want to see our political leaders um, being advocates in support of opportunities for people who've left prison to be able to gain employment. Um, What I'm about to say may shock people, but... You know, it needs to be said because it's true. Um, When Donald Trump was president of the United States, uh, he was speaking out in a very public way in support of employment opportunities for people who'd been to prison and held major functions at the White House. And in the United States, you know, people who would consider themselves on the right of politics have been great champions of of this. So my point is that this ought to be something that uh, both sides of politics uh, get behind. And when people leave prison, it's an absolutely critical time. If they can have the opportunity of employment, uh, it can be the absolute crucial element um, which gives them a a fresh start in life. So I'm absolutely right behind it and want our political leaders to get behind it as well and and employers and employer organisations. That's why this justice reform initiative uh, has a big space for employers to get behind it and support it. Joe, when you speak to to young people that are coming through, and I know around 60% uh, of the people that you spend time with, that you help with these programs, have maybe from African uh, backgrounds, that, that English isn't always their first language. When they come to you, are they saying that they can get jobs, that they can find work? You know, what role does prison have on their employment opportunities and how much of a problem is that for you when it comes to reoffending or helping somebody rehabilitate? It's a big, it is a big difficulty. Um, for the young people that we support here, um, around 80% of them are usually identify as cold background and of that, 60% in the West here are young people from an African background. It is a significant barrier for young people um, and because a lot of them, and I'm just thinking on the most recent statistics, um, a lot uh, when we work with young people, what we learn is they've often disengaged with employment at year 11 or 12 or less. So our current stats are around 50%. 50% of the people engaging with us through these pathways 
have disengaged before year 11. Um, and they, so they are um, less likely to have had much training and skills. Mm. There's quite a, a, an involved discussion that needs to occur to get young people ready. Um, and it may be simple things like um, exploring what, what their interests are, um, but it's likely to be um, significant support um, around preparation for interviews. That could be anything... Um, it could be anything from helping them with CVs right through to helping them look for, for options, working on the dialogue with employers. But that disclosure that you talked about, the disclosure of, as to whether they need to um, share um, convictions is, is incredibly pertinent um, and it is something that um, it comes up very, very, very regularly with the young people that we support. Is there a way that that can change? Can we, are there initiatives? I mean, we put all sorts of initiatives in place for employers. You know, it might be if, if someone has been unemployed for a long period of time and if you take them on board, then there was a there was a time, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, but, you know, where the government, I don't know whether it was state or federal, they would kick in a, a certain amount of, of money to help pay for that employee. Whether or not that helped long term, sometimes it did. I know it helped with some friends of mine, but, you know, initiatives were in place so that employers maybe gave people a go that previously they wouldn't have. Do we need to look at something as simple as that, Jo? I think in a word, yes. I think we do. We do need to look at something as simple as, as those kinds of initiatives because at the moment we need to work with young people about how they word that because they usually do have to disclose. If you're doing a ref check, if you're doing police check, Usually those kinds of things do have to be disclosed. So there's quite a bit of work and you can imagine how tough it is for a young person to disclose that to a potential employer when they've done a lot of hard yards in many instances just to get to office stage. Joe, do you get the support that you need? I know Robert Tickner throughout this program, you know, we've been speaking about how these community groups, there's so many of them out there that they're all already doing great work. A lot of them have solutions, have ideas, but do we have enough of them? Do you have enough access? Do you have enough money and resources to be able to run them? I know your court referrals, Joe, have been through the roof just in the last 12 months and you've seen a huge increase. I mean, how, as you said, I think at the very beginning of this program, Robert, many of you run off the smell of an oily rag. How how, how do you get by and what would help you get your work out there across the board, even beyond the western suburbs? Um, look, it's, it's hard to know. That's like asking me for the, um, for the perfect response. I mean, ultimately, it would be useful to know whether um, it's valued and um, by, you know, by our funders and whether um, they are able to make a commitment. For, from our perspective, we know, we know young people are disengaged from have been disengaged from education. They've been significantly impacted and even in the last 12 months, particularly in the employment sector. And if we, we knew that we were able to continue our work, we were able to provide that, at least that certainty to young people. Jo, thanks so much for the work that you do. Thank you. That's Jo Malcolm Black. She's the CEO of the Youth Junction. You can Google them. You know, if this is something that would help you or someone close to you, incredible work and programs that offer everything from learning how to cook, how to be a barista, uh, how to g- get skills that will help you in life and hopefully help with employment. Robert Tickner, we've kept you for the whole hour, but I'm so grateful. I want to read this text to you. This is from Melissa, who sent a message. She says she lives in the northern suburbs. Hello, my son was released from prison last November with no accommodation no financial support because he was sentenced whilst on remand. He had to wait two weeks for a Centrelink payment. He's still homeless and I am working only part-time. I've been paying obscene amounts of money for his accommodation. Office of Correction do not support with all of the accommodation. So where do we go when we set people free, when they get out of jail? I was homeless and I'm currently sharing with an alcoholic. I'm also struggling to find appropriate accommodation myself after being in the same rent for 15 years, I was given six weeks to vacate demolition of that place. Both my son and I have struggled and will continue to struggle for a very long time. Skills are great, but what about accommodation? That's from Melissa. Gosh, there's so much in that message, isn't there? It shows you that it can be generational, that sometimes no matter how hard you try, you feel like that so many things are stacked up against you and that so often it comes down to the basics, Robert, doesn't it? accommodation, 
employment. Absolutely. And again, it's about walking in people's shoes and just imagine how difficult it is to to break through to a new life um, when you've got that, you know, wall wall of obstacles confronting you uh, on a daily basis. Um, I guess, um, you know, my ultimate message, Rochelle, is to people to to think about these issues. Um, I really urge people to understand this isn't a partisan issue of any kind. Um, it's one that really warrants the support of all people of goodwill in our community. And if people would like to take a look at our uh, website, um, the Justice Reform Initiative, you can just simply Google jailing is failing and you'll see um, a fairly rich source of information and background there, including a briefing which we've sent to every parliamentarian in Australia. But we need to get the community behind this campaign and come together as people of goodwill really to send that message not only to our state and territory governments but also to our national government as well. I said the other day that uh, this is an issue that warrants the attention of our Prime Minister and I urge that Mr Morrison reach across the aisle to Mr Albanese and that together they um, become engaged with this issue because although criminal justice issues are the frontline responsibility of the states and territories, we saw the leadership that John Howard gave uh, after the tragedy at Port Arthur in driving uh, gun reform right across this wide brown land of urging premiers and chief ministers yeah. and change police ministers. Happen. Change, change can, can happen. happen. But in that, um, the national government has an important role and I'm absolutely convinced that within the you know, uh, coming five or six years that you know, there will be a, a great community push that's because exciting. we're being left behind the rest of the world and, and that's not a, something that Australians like. We can do better. Robert, thanks so much for your time today and for the work that you do. Thank you. That's Robert Tickner, AO. He's the chair of the Justice Reform Initiative. He was the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Affairs Minister under both Bob Hawke and Paul Keating. If you want to look at some of the work that they do, you can, as he said, you can just look up Jailing is Failing or the Justice Reform Initiative. If you wanted to join the conversation today and maybe you felt a little bit nervous about it or you didn't feel comfortable and you want to share your story, you can always email us, conversationhour at abc.net.au. If you've ever missed the conversation, Hour, please subscribe. Conversation Hour at the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Take care and we'll speak with you soon.